Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. As with most of the epistles, you'll find in the first few chapters of each book that there will be a doctrine or theology, if you would, and, and instructions from God, what God expects. And then when you get to the end of a book, there'll be what we would call practice. This is how you put this into practice. For example, in the book of Romans, you have Romans chapters 1 through 11, a doctrine, theology, what God's word uh, directs. And then from 12 on in the book of Romans, you have a practicality, how this flushes out, how this works out. And the same thing with 1 Peter. Chapters 1 and 2, we would see them as doctrine, as theology. And then from 3 on, practicality, how this flushes out in your life. Chapter 3 specifically now deals with godly living in the home and in the church. This is what God expects for us in the home, in the church, and in the world round about us. Uh, We want to uh, see that God sets a bar for Christians, uh, specifically for Christians. It's a step up the rung, if you would. A good example of that would be back in the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah spoke to the, the people in Israel by the water gate. It said he stood up on a pulpit of wood. All pulpits should be wood. Shouldn't be any plastic in them and things like that. But pulpit of wood, and it says he was above the people. Why? So the people could see him. And that's God's instruction to us as Christians. We're to live above the fray. We're to be different than the world. You say, well, I don't want people looking at me. If you live for Christ, they're going to look at you anyway. We're to stand firm in the word of God above the fray. The, a rung up, if you would. And Peter mentions that, and we're going to see a couple of different aspects, but I want to focus on verses 13 through 17 later on in this message and then pick it up again next week. First of all, notice in the marriage in chapter 1, Peter deals with the husband and wife relationship. 1 Peter 3, I'm sorry, in verse 1, verses 1 through 7, he deals with the husband-wife relationship. Then later on, in daily living, verses 8 through 12, and then verses 13 through 17 pertaining to persecution. So we'll begin with the husband and wife relationship. Just very quickly, we'll move through that. In our language, English, which I sometimes butcher, but in English, uh, we have word pictures. For example, if I said twilight, at twilight in the evening, Everything gets kind of soft around the edges. That's a word picture of the end of the day and everything's, you know, just kind of, ah, that type of thing. You you can understand that. But I had a friend that was ministering to Chinese people, and he said the Chinese people have pictured words. Not word pictures, but pictured words. And he mentioned to me that the word for argument in Chinese was a roof with a man and woman under it. That was the pictured word or the symbol for argument. Now, I can't verify that. I don't know. He didn't have a reason to lie to me, but you you get a picture of a marriage, and today, of course, marriages are disintegrating at over 50%. Uh, Even, um, uh, I'm ashamed to say, in in Christian marriages as well. We live in times of real turmoil, but Peter gives, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, instruction on how husbands and wives are to live together, to dwell together, and to honor the Lord together. First of all, with the wife, he's talking about godly living here. He says in in chapter 3 and verse 1, I'm reading from a a good Bible, a King James Bible. 
In the same manner, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, and the assumption here is they've heard the word. Now, this could be talking to an unsaved mate, or it could be talking to a believing mate that's not honoring the Lord. We're not sure about that. But he says that the wives, if their husband obey not the word, they also may, without a word, another word, be won by the behavior of the wives. That is, you've said what you're supposed to say. You have you've given them God's word, or they have heard God's word. Okay, now you, as a wife, live it. Be an example of that. And notice what he says. He said, they may be won by the behavior of the wives. Now in verse 2, while they behold your chaste conduct coupled with fear. That is, they're going to observe what you're doing. And it's not putting on makeup, apparel. It's not the clothing you wear. It's with your testimony before the Lord. He says, let it be with the hidden man of the heart. Notice in verse 4, but let it be with the hidden man of the heart, in which is not corruptible even an ornament of a meek and quiet spirit in the sight of God, which is great price. A testimony by a meek and quiet spirit. This is a wonderful, wonderful statement for us. It's not, you know, you're badgering him into being a good Christian. You shouldn't do that. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. 140 words a minute with gusts up to 180. You know, no, no, that's not what God wants from you. God wants you to live a Christ-like life. Step up the rung. Step up the rung. Be a good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And show him, by Christ in you, the hope of glory, what the wife should be like. Then he deals with the husbands. Husbands, he says, know your position in the family. Know what you are. My wife and I went on vacation two weeks ago, and we were at a place, and there's little balconies that you can go out, and we go out and sitting on a balcony, and a couple and two kids, I think, came out of the door, and he was screeching at his wife, screeching, and uh, at a very high-pitched voice. It, was, it wasn't funny, but it was, you know what I mean? And finally, he, she was trying to explain to him what happened, and we don't know exactly what happened, so finally he said, I'm the boss, you know! Oh, yeah, great. First of all, you sound like it. And secondly, if you have to tell people, you're not. If you have to tell people, you're not. Act it. Grow up, sir. Don't scream at your wife out in the parking lot in front of people. Be a man. And that's what God says to men, essentially. He says in verse 7, In like manner, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, understanding your wife. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, you understand her strengths and her weaknesses, just like she knows yours, your strengths and weaknesses. Support her in her strengths and strengthen her in her weaknesses. That's your job. That's your job. But also, a, a, a great part of your job as the head of your home is, of course, decision-making, but also giving honor unto the wife. Look at verse 7 again. And like many of you husbands, dwell with them according to uh, knowledge, giving honor honor unto the wife as unto a weaker vessel or a precious vessel. Something that's valued, that's the word, a value. Uh, Remember, God said her value is above rubies in the book of Proverbs. And that's the husband. Step up, sir. I don't care what other men are like. I don't care what other men do. You step up, sir, and you act like the husband you're supposed to act like if you call yourself a Christian. If you don't, then who's going to question that? You're just living like the world. The world won't question you. 
They won't have anything to say. Why? Because you're just like they are. But you step up. You treat your wife as a precious vessel. Not only that, if you don't treat her as a precious vessel, your prayers will be hindered. Okay, guys, if, if, if you're not getting answered to prayer, what's the problem? It could be in your house, and it can be you. Make sure you're living like the man you're supposed to live. Step up. Step up. Why else would the world ask you for a reason to hope that is within you if you live like everyone else? And then he continues on, of course, uh, starting in verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion on one another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, be sympathetic toward one another. Again, we're stepping up. We're stepping up. As Christians, we're to support, strengthen, and help one another. Curtis, the same mind, the mind of Christ, the word of God. He says, not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you should inherit a blessing. That's your calling. Step up. The next rung. Make sure that you're walking according to the word of God. Now, you can't do that in your own strength. If you step up a rung, you'll fall down in your own strength. But God says you step up. Why? The spirit of God in you, Christ in you, will give you the strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's his might you're looking at. It's his might you want to stand in. It's his might that you're stepping up with. Pick it up in verse 11, verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him askew or get away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Why? Well, first of all, because that you're commanded by the Lord to do that. That's your job. Do your job. Sir Belichick, do your job. Everyone has a job to do as a husband, as a wife, as a child. God's word is very clear on that, whether Belichick said it or not. God's word is clear on that. We need to make sure that we're doing what God told us to do. Not only that, he is looking. He's observing. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God is always observing our testimony, our life, in our behavior before him. Always. The Lord is watching. You know, we need to be careful, don't we? Angels are observing, Peter tells us. All the spirit world observes our life. That's why God says, I've given you the strength. Be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might, by the spirit of God, to step up that rung and to be a testimony in the face of this present evil world. Now, picking up in verse 13, in verse 13, and this is where we'll concentrate. Notice what he says, starting in, uh, in uh, 1 Peter 3, 13, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Now, you recognize that this is a condition in the Greek, if, means it's the remotest possibility. Who is that that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good. If you're doing the right thing, there won't be any problem. There won't be any problem. You know the example. You're flying down the highway faster than the speed limit is. There's a cop. You step on the brake. Why? Because you're doing something wrong. But if you're keeping the speed limit, there's nothing to be worried about. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But 
And if you suffer for righteousness' sake, there's a possibility it could happen. And in today's society, in today's world, this present day that we live in, that's a good possibility today. If you're doing the right thing before the Lord, if you're saying the right thing before the Lord, it's possible that you could suffer for righteousness' sake. It's possible. However, Peter lets us know, be followers of that which is good. In other words, be enthusiastic for the right thing. Be enthusiastic for it. It doesn't mean you walk down the street with a sign. None of that we're talking about. We're talking just be enthusiastic. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, the joy that's in your life, you're living every day for the Lord. But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, be prepared. Be prepared to suffer victoriously. Don't allow yourself to be dragged down by people who may be saying things or doing things contrary to the word of God. Don't allow yourself to be pulled down off that rung. Stand up, the next rung. Stand on the next rung for the Lord. Then he says in verse 4, verse 15, notice rather, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord in your heart, the Lord God in your heart always. Sanctify. Um, this term is a, is, a, is a beautiful term, sanctify. It means to hallow, the old English word hallow, or to set apart, to make a place, a position of authority in your life. I want you to notice, he's the Lord God. He's the Lord God. I fear there has been a lessening of the glory of God's name by people just always calling him Jesus. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you can't call him Jesus. The Bible talks about it. But over 50% of the time, even more than that, he's called Lord Christ, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't ever want us to become so familiar that we lose that term of respect. It's like, in my household, as much as I love my boys and my daughter, they called me dad. I just didn't allow them to say, hey, Bill. No, there's authority. There needs to be a respect. And when we call him the Lord Jesus Christ, it, 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 it heightens that. It steps up. Again, there's nothing wrong with him calling, nothing wrong with calling him Jesus, Yeshua, Savior. There's nothing wrong with that. But realize who he is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Peter says that. Keep this commandment until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 6, 14 and 15, which, uh, which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. When we address him, that's the way uh, we're to do it. If you, I, I trust if you went to see the president, which I don't intend to, uh, but if we went to, hi, Dawn. How are you doing? We address him, Mr. President. Our service, our military service, has rank in order that they need to address one another that way. And so when we address the Lord Jesus Christ, be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross for our sin. Okay, let's go on a little bit further, if you could, please. We read, set apart. But sanctify, set apart, put God in his proper position. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. I I saw a little poem. I'm not very good with poems, but it's short, so I probably won't mess it up. In your hearts enthrone him. 
There let him subdue all that is holy and all that is not true. Set him, set him at the place where he can uh, correct your heart and your soul or bless your mind uh, with his word. Be ready always to give an answer. In picking it up in verse, again in verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God on your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. For what? Remember, if you suffer for righteousness sake, here comes the suffering, are you ready to give an answer? If you've stepped up and you're honoring the Lord with your life, be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now the word, there's a technical word, and it has to do with giving defense at a formal, formal trial. I want you to see an example of that. Keep your hand here. We'll come right back. Head with me to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. It's apologetics is, is the English word we get from that. Acts chapter 25. It's to give an answer. That is, a, be prepared to give a defense a defense for your theology, a, 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 defense for your, a defense for your belief, a, a defense for that which holds you. And we start with Felix. Felix is dealing with King Agrippa, and they're talking about the Apostle Paul. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 13. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to greet Festus. He was the governor. This is Caesarea Maritima on the coast. It's the head of Roman rule in Israel. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause to the king, saying, there was a certain man left in bonds by Felix. Felix was a former governor. Festus took over. Festus is saying, I have this guy here that was, is here because he was arrested in Jerusalem by the, by the elders there. Uh, and my Roman guard brought him here, and he's still here under house arrest. In verse 15, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have a judgment against him. We're in a court of law here, in our formal court. To whom I answered, it is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before he is accused, to die rather, before he who was accused has uh, faced his accusers and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the accusation. That's the formal court of law. If you've ever had to go to court, uh, on a couple of occasions I've had to go to court, not because anything I did, but uh, because I was involved in, in, in the case and was a witness. If you've had to go to court, you have to give a formal answer. You have to swear, or at least you used to then, swear on a Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And the, uh, the defense attorney, and, and uh, they'll, they'll ask you questions. And when you speak, you're giving a defense, if you would, for your cause. And that's exactly what the word apologetics is, to give a defense for your cause. And we want to see this together. We, we, it's so important for us to give a, be able to give a formal defense to anyone that asks us a reason for the hope that's in you. Included in that question, and, and I'm including the question, is this question for you and question for me. And, and to me, this is most important. Is your faith, is your faith a conviction or is it a preference? And I'm sorry to say today, I've met quite a few Christians that their faith is a preference. 
A preference is something that you hold. I prefer to do this. Personally, I prefer to go to this place. I prefer to act this way. I prefer to read this. I prefer to watch this. I prefer that. That's your preference. A conviction isn't something you hold. It's something that holds you. I believe this unto death. I will not change because God's word has said, God has spoken. Is your faith a conviction or is it a preference? If it's a preference, you'll never step up the ladder, ever. If it's a conviction, you're already on it. You're ready. Be ready to give an answer to something that holds you. Now, it just stands to reason, if you have a conviction, that you should be adequately, uh, adequately equipped right now to give an answer. If this is the conviction of your life, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, if you believe that he's King of kings and Lord of lords, if you believe that when you die you're going to go directly into his presence, you should be ready to tell people about that. If not, if not, either you just got saved or you're a pitiful Christian. Is it okay to say that? Probably not, but it's true. It's true. You have something to be ashamed of if you cannot tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not, don't let it sit there, right? Why? Because you can, you can learn. And that's what we're going to look at together. You can learn how, what to say and how to say it, to honor the Lord and to give people a reason for the hope that's within you. And Lord willing, that's what we'll look at mostly next week. But for this week, let's continue on in our studies now. Head with me, we're coming back, so keep something in there. Head with me, if you would, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is talking to Timothy, and you know, of course, this is his last letter to Timothy. As far as we know, at, after this point, Paul uh, was uh, executed. Many people believe he got his head removed, and that's entirely possible. We don't know exactly. God does not let us know. One day, when we get to heaven, perhaps we'll know but it may not be that important. Paul died. He could have died of COVID-19. He could have died of an accident. He could have died of cancer. He could have died of something, but he, he, he died. It's not important how you die. It's as, as if you're ready to die. Are you ready to meet the Lord? That's the question. Okay, we're in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Look with me, please, uh, right at verse 15. Paul is talking to Timothy and letting him know that Timothy needs to teach the word of God. Timothy needs to be a student and a deliverer of the word of God. And that's our job as well. Timothy, of course, was the pastor at Ephesus. But that's for every one of us, it's the same application here, picking it up in verse 14, 2 Timothy 2, 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance. Who? The church. Continual action. Keep on putting them in remembrance of these things. Verse 14 again, of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not, that is to be busy, overcome with, permeated with, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Those words aren't important. Those are your words, sir. Those words aren't important. That's your defense, sir. We, you need to give them God's word. Why? Because God's word is the only word that's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is not strong. Your word is not powerful. I hate you. 
Okay, but God loves me. Your words can fall like dust on the ground. It's what God says that matters. It's what he says that ultimately we'll give account for one day. And so don't strive about words. Don't, don't give them your word, Timothy. Give them God's word. Picking it up in verse 15. Study. Study what? To show thyself approved unto God. You know, uh, when someone goes on death row, it's my understanding that they get a last meal they want. You know what Paul's last meal was? Bring the scrolls. Bring the scriptures. That's what Paul wanted. Bring the word of God when you come, Timothy. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly slicing the word of God. You, as a Christian, need to be prepared with the scriptures. You need to be prepared to do the word of God by the will of God, showing forth God who he is and his purposes for you. That's what the world needs to see. We need to step up or wrong. If you look like everyone else and you sound like everyone else and you do everything everyone else does, why would they ask you a reason for the hope that's in you? Well, Peter said, you need to step up or wrong. As a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a person of society, step up that rung so people will have a reason to ask you for the reason of the hope that's within you. Now, Paul, uh, Peter, rather, I'm sorry, back in 1 Peter 3, if you'd go back there with me again. 1 Peter 3, Peter is apparently, and I say apparently because I'm not exactly sure, but most of the commentators I looked at uh, quoted this, and, and it, it fits together as far as my studies are concerned. He's quoting from uh, from Isaiah uh, chapter 8 and verse 13. Peter's quoting from there, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be always ready. I won't have you turn there, but in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is, uh, is talking to Ahaz. And he's letting Ahaz know, don't fear anything. Ahaz was af- afraid of the Assyrian Empire. They were gathering together and they were going to attack Israel, the northern tribe. He said, don't, let, don't fear anything, but let the Lord God be your fear. Let the Lord God be your fear. And we need to recognize that the Lord God needs to be our fear. That is, we need to trust him, we need to believe him, we need to look wholly onto him. We need not fear men. We need not fear men. All we need to do is fear God, who he is. Now, humbleness is my attitude before men. Fear should be my attitude before God. Now, we're not talking about dread, but unsaved people need to be in dread before God. They need to fear why he's the one who can cast into everlasting darkness forever and ever. But as a Christian, I fear him in reverence. Why? Because I'm told that one day I will stand before him and give account for the things done in my body, whether they be good or bad. I'm going to stand there. Now, if your child isn't afraid of the consequences of not obeying you, will they honor you? Well, the answer is no. The answer is no. But if they know there's consequences for not obeying you and they fear those consequences, then they will obey. And that's what God wants from us. From the heart to obey his word, but recognizing there's consequences if we do not. 
So we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and fear him. And Peter is letting his uh, readers know that they need to be ready for anything that comes their way. They need to be prepared. Be enthusiastic for those things which are good. Be prepared to suffer victoriously. Be ready for all that comes your way. Now, with meekness and fear, we're back in 1 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> with meekness and with fear. And then he lets them know that they need to maintain a good conscience. A good conscience. Now, a conscience, and, and we won't get into the specifics of that, it's a, a recognition, a recognition that you know that God knows that you know. That's the best definition I've ever heard. That's your conscience. You know that God knows that you know. You realize that God is sovereign over everything, and all of my thought processes, everything I do, God knows them. So I want to make sure that I know that God knows that I know that I'm, I want to honor him. A good conscience. Make sure that you're not dragging uh, along with you a bundle or a burden, a weight that does so easily beset you. Make sure that you have a good conscience. Whereas they speak evil of you, they're saying things about you. Make sure they're not right. Make sure they're not right. There are some people that, uh, you know, well, everyone talks bad about me. It's because you've given them crates of ammunition to do that. You've given them the ammunition for that. But if you're living in godliness, now that does not mean we don't make mistakes. It does not mean we don't sin. But when you do that, you get it made right with the person. You get it made right with your mate. You get it made right with your fellow co-worker or your relatives or whatever it may be. You get it made right. You want to make sure that you're standing on righteousness. Now, they may still not like you because you're standing for godliness. It might be they're unsaved. They hate the word of God or they're involved in sin and now they're angry with you for letting them know. Whatever it may be. But make sure that you're right in what you said or what you did. Whereas having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good manner of life in Christ. See, you want them to see Christ in you, and one day, Lord willing, if they come out of their sin or they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will say, you know, I remember back, and they were right. When I was a young man, I was only in my very, very early 20s, a group of my friends became Christians. They weren't close friends, but I, I knew them. They became Christians. And, you know, I'm in my early 20s, and I'm involved in the world right up to the top of my head and everything in it. And some of these guys started coming over and talking to me about the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to think. One of them in particular, he was on me like, ugly and a gorilla, you know, just all over me, all the time, talking to me. Every time I saw him, I, I went to a, a hot dog, in case you don't know it, hot dogs are the superfood. I was at a hot dog place in Lowell, Elliot's Hot Dogs, Elliot's Hot Dogs in Lowell, and I met him there, and he kept coming over to me and talking to me about the Lord. I just wanted to eat my hot dog, I, just, I didn't want him talking, 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 talking about the Lord. And I said some pretty mean things to him. I must admit, I did. And he was a wonderful Christian man. And later on, about a year later, 
I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and I was ashamed for the things I had said to him. I was ashamed. I recognized he was 100% right, and I was 100% wrong. And thankfully, we went to the same church together, got it made right with the Lord, and everything was wonderful. But realize, realize that we need to make sure that we're giving a testimony that one day, if they're saying these vile things, that we will not be ashamed, but rather they will be ashamed of what they've said to us. Let's not be ashamed of our testimony, but let them be ashamed because they rejected our testimony so that they might see Christ. That's the whole purpose. Not that they be ashamed, but that they see Christ in us, that hope of glory. Now in verse 17, just to conclude this for a second, he says uh, in verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for wellness, for well-doing, than for evil-doing. When you step up that rung, when you're honoring the Lord Jesus Christ with your life, you need to be prepared for the consequences. Be prepared for what's coming your way. It can, at times, and perhaps will be, significant. That people are not going to speak well of you, but more evil. And actions could be taken. Today, there's some men and women out there doing some pretty evil things against righteousness. They, indeed, are calling good evil and evil good. It's the day we live in. So we want to make sure that we're stepping up that rung and prepared for any consequences. The rung means more than the consequences. Okay, let's go on now. If we enthrone the Lord Jesus Christ as the apex of our lives, if we see him King of Kings and Lord of Lords, if if he is our blessed and only Savior, which he should be, of course, then we need to realize, first of all, that every word of God is pure. Every word. I used to have little business cards. I don't even know you do that anymore. But I wanted on all my business cards, every word of God is pure. So when I handed them to someone, first of all, they would see it. I don't know if they cared or not. But in the book of Proverbs 30 and verse 5, every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in him. That's that's what I want people to see. God is my shield. And I believe every word of God is pure. All that he has spoken and that he has now written for us, every word of God is pure in the original autographs. Some Some versions out there have perverted some things, but in the original autographs, every word of God is pure. And we need to recognize that it's completely reliable, completely reliable, Not only that, every word of God, according to Psalms 119 and verse 89, every word of God is forever settled in heaven. You know, my wife and I just had an experience. She stayed home because she didn't want to come, but I had to go and um, we're looking for a new vehicle. We needed a new vehicle. And uh, when when I would um, go to a car dealership, for example, I went to several of them looking for different types of vehicles that will probably be our forever vehicle, but I went to different types of vehicle owners, and I, I would say to the men, I do not plan on buying the car today. Facial expressions change them immediately. But I do not feel, I'm not going to buy the car today. My wife and I always, always, we've made a pact together. We will not buy something the very day we see it. Something significant. If it's ice cream, we'll get it right away. But something significant. <laughs> we will not buy it that day. Why? 
because we have often, often, often got home and decided we don't need that thing. We already have two of them or something like that. You, you know what I'm saying. So we won't buy anything that day because it's shiny and men are like crows that fly after shiny things. We won't do that. We, we will always wait. So I told them the car deal of that, and, and I said, so, sir, I would like you to give me your bottom number. And if it's a number of, that I want, if it's a number that's acceptable to my wife and I, I will come back, in this case, on Monday and purchase a car. I want your bottom number. Every one of them said, yes, sir, and gave me their bottom number. A couple of them called me later. Oh, that wasn't the bottom number. We just found another $1,000 that we can take off or, you know, that type of thing. God never changes his mind. It's settled in heaven. What God said he meant and what God meant he said, and it's never, ever going to change. God said that without belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you will go into hell forever and ever. Ooh, he couldn't have meant that. Perhaps there's a place called something, and you just go there for a little while. And then after the little while, if you're good enough, you get out of there. No, that's not what God said. God said if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you will be saved and enter the kingdom of God forever and ever by believing. Oh, but I've done some pretty bad things. That's not what God said. God said if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. His word is forever settled in heaven forever. Isn't that wonderful? I think it is. It's great. Why, I can trust everything he says. You know, you can't trust me. I I want you to. I, I desire that. And it should be that you can. But you know what? I'm a human being. And sometimes, purposefully or, you know, accidentally, if you want to put it that way, we do things to hurt people. We do. We wish it wasn't so, but it is. But you can forever trust what God said. And because God's word is completely, use the word trustable, huh? you can trust it. Because God, now you can rely upon that. Head with me to Colossians for a moment. Colossians chapter 1. I'm running out of time, so just please be patient. Are you hot? How come I'm so hot? Colossians uh, chapter 1. Look at verse 23, please. Colossians 1, 23. This is so important for us that God's word is forever settled in heaven. Colossians 1, 23. Paul is talking to Christians, obviously, uh, and God's work, God's reconciling work, how God works through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse... Uh, 21, and you that were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled, bought, he paid for you, paid for you on Calvary's cross, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature that is under heaven, of which I, Paul, am made a minister. Continue in the faith. Why? It's reliable. Continue in the faith. Why? Because God said it. It's forever settled in heaven. And let that be your roots. 
Let that be your roots, grounded, if you would. Look at Colossians 2, please. Colossians 2. We're to have an unwavering commitment not to a place, not to a person, but to the Word of God. A, a commitment, it's, it's unwavering, it's settled. Look at, you would, at Colossians 2. Look at verses 6 and 7. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, and my Bible says, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving, rooted and grounded in the faith, that your roots go deep. It's interesting, when a windstorm takes place, usually the pine trees go over. Why? Their roots run along top of the ground. But an oak will stand there, and it, sometimes they snap off at the top in a giant wind, but the roots are held deep, a taproot down into the ground. My wife and I had an example of that. My first pastorate, full-time pastorate, was in Maine, up in Livermore, Maine. And because everyone in the church had a garden, we were rookies, you know, just didn't know anything. Okay, we'll have a garden. So I asked a man to come over and to, to till our soil. And he did that. He had a tilling machine. He came over and tilled our soil. And we had a garden probably about half the size of this room. Oh, what a pain in the neck that garden was. At any rate, we grew some corn. And to our delight, up it came. Big, giant stalks of corn. I couldn't believe it. We never got any because the raccoons invaded our corn. But the point I want to make is we lived in a valley. Bear Mountain was up here. There was another mountain over here. And we lived in a valley. And a thunderstorm came through one night and rattled the house like nothing I have ever heard. Thunderstorm swept down that valley, and I went out in the morning, and all the corn was laying on the ground prior to the raccoons. It was all laying on the ground. So we, it's either both of us, or, or Nancy helped me, or I did it myself, I went and got sticks, and I was propping the corn up because I thought, it's laying on the ground. Now, I know it's not supposed to do that. <laughs> I knew enough. So I called one of the elders in the church and said, Sir, all my corn is laying on the ground. Eh, eh, it's nothing. Leave it alone, he said. It'll stand up. It was unbelievable. If you notice the bottom of a corn, the roots go down deep in the ground, and that root held that corn so that it just picked itself back up straight with ears of corn on it. That's the roots God wants you to have. Will the wind knock you over? From time to time, it certainly will. But unless you're rooted and grounded in Christ, you'll blow over like a pine tree. You need to be rooted. Your roots need to go deep in the word of God. It requires deep roots. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. As you have therefore received the Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How? According to his word. And notice, rooted and built up in him and established Established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Keep sinking your, your roots deeper. And the more you read of the word of God, the deeper your roots will go. The more you study, the more you compare God's word, the deeper your roots will go. You need not be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we especially need to be rooted in the word of God today. Frankly, I've never seen anything like it. The voices around us with their, their worldview, and, and I'm going to say this with all my heart, 
satanically inspired. Their worldview is satanically inspired. Television, radio, politics, ridden, riddled, I should say, riddled with fake news. You say, well, the numbers don't lie. No, but let me tell you this, liars use numbers. Liars use numbers. And all around us, this is happening. All around us, it's an incredible thing to see. And you must admit that the world, the wheels have fallen off. They call evil good and good evil. And you know, some of them look impressive, don't do they not? Some of them do. Up and down our East Coast, for example, they're worried about the COVID virus, and should be. It's a serious thing. We're not making light of it at all. And they're worried about people dying of the COVID virus. Yet many, many, many of our authorities will slaughter babies in the womb. And that doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. God wants us to make sure that we're living above the fray. See, there's, there's an inch of water on the ground. Step up. You say, well, that's storage done yet. Step up. Step up and live for the Lord. Step up and let his word dwell in you richly. Today, we need an anchor, and we've got it. Let's look at that and we'll close. Head with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Now, if you're questioning, how, how do we give a reason for the hope that's within us? Next week, we'll look at that together. We'll, we'll look at that and, and perhaps lay out some foundation to help you out. Because all of us struggle sometimes when we're talking to someone about the Lord. We don't want to hurt them. We don't want to offend them. And yet, we need to make sure we're giving them the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in Hebrews chapter 6. Notice, if you would please, write in verse 19. Let's look at verse 17. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. We're grabbing on to the word of God. God said it. He swore it and he's written it for us. It's forever settled in heaven. And then he says this, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into within the veil. Strong and steadfast. Everything God said is true. It's trustworthy. It's pure. Everything God has said is right, and it can anchor us in a day in which the world is whirling around. We need the word of God to anchor our soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your written word. Thank you for this time. I pray, Father, that each one of us might recognize that we are to step up a rung. Not in our own strength we'll fall, but be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on that whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Father, he's casting his wiles around you know very well. He's stricken some Christians pretty hard. Is many people worried about the world and the things of this world and not about the things of the Lord. Father, help us to focus on you and your written, revealed truth. We pray, Father, that you'd help each one of us to be ready, prepared to give an answer for the truth, the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.